0: Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the award winning Hospital Finance Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Paul Keckley, managing editor of the Keckley Report, and a healthcare researcher and widely known industry expert. Paul recently wrote about what he sees coming in healthcare in 2020, and we're happy to have him back on the show to discuss his analysis. Paul, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Mike. Always good to be with you.
0: So, Paul, we were chatting about the myriad of issues coming up right now in, in healthcare, and as usual, there there are no uh, no lack of things to discuss. Um, one of the things that was sort of top of mind for me, and and I've, I've just been involved in, in a lot of these discussions lately. Has to do with with price transparency, and you know the hospitals have uh, a mandate coming up. They really have next year to to deal with how they're going to put that information out on out on the website on their websites for for public consumption. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, how's that? How do you think that's going to go, and and what if any impact uh, might it actually have on on consumers or researchers or other stakeholders?
1: Um. It's obviously a hot topic. Um, the uh, F.A.H. and A.H.A. and some others uh, filed a suit, as expected, to challenge it, um, and that that will be, uh, I think, expedited in the D.C. court. But uh, the most problematic part of that uh, executive order and then that stipulation from C.M.S. is that the negotiations between insurers and hospitals becomes uh, publicly accessible in addition to um, the underlying costs and what prices folks would expect to pay for 300 quote-unquote shoppable services. Uh, 75 would be standard across all hospitals, and then 225 others. Um, I don't think this, in its current form, will be implemented um, because it challenges contract law and it gets into some pretty vicious uh, point-counterpoint around um, what's the end game here. If you disclose the agreement that you have with an insurer, then does that immediately drive prices for consumers up or down? And that depends on the source. Um, The academicians that have advised um, on this uh, have basically said, we know that by making this information available that prices will plummet for consumers. And that's a great theory, um, but what we found in the past in similar efforts is um, what really stimulates a consumer to pay any attention at all is the, uh, really the effort on the part of a plan or an employer to structure uh, price shopping into their benefit design and that's not been um, a very consistent plan design for a lot of employers and a lot of health insurers so uh, we're a long way from seeing where this is going to play out i know the rule said uh, this would be implemented january 1st 2021 but i think we'll step back i think there'll be some concessions made as to how this is implemented and will it apply to all Uh, 4,900 hospitals, or will there be exceptions made? Um, Mike, another interesting uh, piece of that is that it applied to physician services for physicians who are employed by the hospital, which is about 40% of the docs in the country, but it doesn't apply to services uh, provided for non-employed doctors. So it's a complicated rule. And uh, we've just seen the first chapter of this. There have been, uh, the president has issued five executive orders, uh, of which three have related to more transparency in health care. Uh, Alex Azar has kind of been on the same page, uh, Seema Verma's role at CMS, they've uh, kind of Uh, create a little bit of distance between where Alex Azar is on this and where uh, CMS is, but um, it's one of those things where you stay tuned. Uh, I think we'll know by the end of the first quarter, um, March or so, uh, exactly how to respond to the negotiated uh, effort to increase price transparency, but as everybody is aware, We had a rule that's been in place for now more than a year that every hospital had to post its uh, charges and its charge master in a machine readable format. Um, So that's already on the books. So um, it's not over. Um, I think right now my bet would be that we'll um, probably reduce the number of shoppable services on the list. And reduce the number in that 75 that are mandated, and transition this in over a longer period of time, uh, where we can make apples and apples comparisons. Um, because there's a lot of unknowns here. There's a lot of gray area, and uh, it's not as simple as an academic theory of price transparency. By the way, we've had uh, we've had similar. Um, Efforts through the years in places like California and New Hampshire and others, states have tried to do this, and they found two things. They found that uh, not a lot of folks pay attention to this, uh, ranging from two to eight percent consumers ever paid any attention at all. Uh, and second, we've had some of the major consultancies like Deloitte and others that kind of dig deep in this stuff, find that. Um, the costs that are targeted to be reduced if this is all about reducing health spending and health cost uh it's not in these um out-of-pocket payment sensitive services where you have your high cost it's in these uh high acuity complex and uh, acute interventions like joint replacements and others so um, I think you have to step back and determine what's the end game here. Is it to lower healthcare spending by engaging consumers more aggressively? Uh, Or is it to check a box and say, we've done it. We've created transparency in healthcare. And that's an unresolved issue right now.
0: Clearly. I, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when you get down to some of the things that are, are shoppable, um, you know, certainly it creates an opportunity for, for people to, um, really think about how they're going to spend their money and, and, and get competitive. But when you get into those more complex, um, uh, situations and, and, and therapeutic interventions, how, how do you, how do you put together the patchwork of, of, of things that might go into that cauldron to, to, to create, um, you know, an episode of care, for instance. And, and, and so how, yeah, you know, how yeah. do you, how do, how do how do you price that out? Uh, particularly if it's acute, you know, an ER situation, obviously yeah. you can't, well, you if, can't do if, it.
1: Right. If you look at, um, if you look at these 32 bundles that are still kind of the centerpiece of the, uh, bundled payment program that CMS has advanced, um, about half of those, you could argue there's a significant, uh, opportunity to engage consumers more directly because there's competition in those uh, domains like uh, hip replacement or uh, heart surgery and others. But in others, uh, in some of the cancers, um, you're dependent on very expensive drugs. And in some cases, those drugs are the only drug in that particular therapeutic class. So, it's just not as simple as pricing a Snickers bar. And um, when I'm on the hill or with various groups, when you break down all of the costs and then you break down indirect costs, you've got a lot of folks in the provider sector, when you look at overhead or you look at uh, the payer mix, or you look at the uh, level of uncompensated care, or even the clinical program portfolio, where some of those services are never going to be break even. You do them because mission or uh, teaching responsibility, other. Uh, so the the short answer is it's more complicated than I think folks uh, recognize. Yet. Um, A level of price transparency is certain. So how do we get from here to there and how fast do we do it and where do we start? So uh, this was simply a start in my view, and it'll be resolved.
0: And I suppose, you know, tangent to that, perhaps on the other end of the spectrum is is surprise billing. You're, You're hearing a lot of a lot of talk, both at the federal and the state level around that issue. What's your take on that?
1: Well, um, it's it's another one of those very interesting stories. As you know, about $30 million has been spent um, by a coalition, largely uh, private equity-backed folks that say uh, this is going to limit access to providers and do this and that. Um, We're going to have legislation that addresses surprise medical billing probably in the next two or three weeks. Um, the question is, what will be the basis for setting the um, the rate at which a surprise medical bill is resolved? And you've got a group of folks that say it ought to go to arbitration if it's above $750, another that says uh, we should use the median rather than the mean, and Uh, we should, uh, resolve those disputes, uh, differently, but we're going to get legislation. Um, it will, I suspect, be based on the median of the, uh, third party insurers payment for in-network care for that out of network bill. And I suspect that, um, floor for that is going to be somewhere in that $750 or so range. This is one of those rare um, areas, um, along with drug prices, where um, the left and the right, if you will, uh, recognize they have to do something. It's just a matter of what's actually in the, the bill that can pass, and this one seems to be moving closer. I think what surprised people is the degree to which um, the funders of opposition to this uh, were the private equity plans that had funded uh, groups like uh, Team Health and uh, Envision and others, where they were actually creating uh, revenue as a result of collecting those surprise medical bills. So, um, it's, it probably led to some transparency about how that part of the industry operates that may be uncomfortable, but, um, I think there'll be legislation.
0: So Paul, I want to pivot and talk about spending a little bit. Uh, you, you you've also, uh, written about that recently and I, you know, perhaps disturbingly, um, and and uh, maybe predictably, spending is is again on the rise, and, and appears to be uh, pre- predicted to be on the rise um, for some time to come. And then, you know, conversely, you've got um, less people insured again. So you see, you're sort of seeing that trend kind of flipping around. So you know, we were talking before the podcast about 2009 and 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 the you know the advent of the ACA. Uh, the whole idea of, you know, sort of handling both of these issues almost simultaneously or at very least the coverage issue. Right. Um, But, but it doesn't seem like, you know, long-term those trends are are bending at at least, at least to, to the naked eye. Is there more to the story?
1: No, it's pretty clear. I think both the numbers of uninsured and the increasing number of underinsured, which, as you know, uh, we have ways of calibrating that where health costs are more than 10% of your uh, disposable household income or things like that. So it's, you know, nearing a third of the population is underinsured who have insurance. So that leads to bad debt, obviously. Um, the deficits of the past two years uh, in the federal spend uh total uh just slightly more than 1.6 trillion dollars um in combination the tax cut and jobs act that was passed in 17 um added another uh trillion to the deficit so uh something's got to give and in an election year You know, this is now kind of being buried underneath the impeachment stuff and this and that, but it'll come back. And Medicare is um, the biggest uh, target for spending cuts. Uh, It represents it with the federal part of Medicaid represent 28 percent of the federal budget. So you expect the feds to come back with uh, some cuts. They're not going to see cuts as a result of um, these alternative payment models in the near term because, as you know, they've not produced the kind of savings that anybody thought they would. So it will boil down to kind of the way we've all grown up in this industry, which is uh, Medicare will set its payment rates and they'll be increasingly aggressive. And that means. Um, The solvency and liquidity for hospitals will become, you know, kind of front and center. One out of four today is in reasonably good shape. Some of that's because they're in markets where you can do that. Some of it is um, they operate uh, very lean, but three out of four is not. So um, I think the story coming out of 2020, let's let's assume in 2020 it's all about the election and Medicare for All gets a lot of attention. That's not going to happen, but some version of that, uh, Medicare Advantage for All or uh, a public option becomes the alternative on the Democratic side to the Republican side that says um, we really need to go back and let the market work. Uh, That will uh, play to the advantage of the big, large, integrated systems and those in markets where you can operate at a five to 6% or above operating margin, where they've had enough um, on their balance sheet in non-operating income to be, strong and credit worthy i think it's notable that most of the major systems in the past 12 months and even going into next year are um floating bonds and securing additional debt because the rates are cheap so i think the separation between the haves and have nots is what we'll see resulting from all this discussion including price transparency and uh whatever happens to the exchanges and things like that
0: Paul my last question for you when when you think about the myriad of of issues that providers have to deal with um not not just financial but you know cybersecurity and um you know the list goes on what do you think is going to be the most disruptive event to affect uh, healthcare providers in 2020
1: Wow. Great question. Um, I just had breakfast with some CEOs and and I can kind of reflect on their concerns. Uh, One is uh, this question of uh, solvency and liquidity, the sustainability of their capital commitments um, as they transition from inpatient to outpatient. None are making big bets on all the alternative payment programs, but all are saying, I've got to at least play. Um, I think there's, in tandem, a growing question of private equity's role, Um, the uh, funding of private equity, for instance, in uh, physician roll-ups is you know, really reshaping how dermatology, urology, orthopedics uh, look in this country. And those business models um, are not necessarily community-focused. Um, PE wants to make an investment, uh, create synergies, get its management fee, get a 20% return annually, and flip that in four to five years. So. That disruption is something that I think folks are gonna have to pay attention to. Uh, Probably akin is um, physicians aren't happy, and whether employed or independent or part of uh, a PE-funded venture, um, there's a sense among the docs that um, they have to step out and become much more aggressive, but there's not a belief that anyone has the secret sauce, that there's some pathway to the promised land for doctors. So I see a lot of entrenchment of the specialty practices into their own, uh, kind of subsectors. Uh, we already had seen that in, uh, in AMA, for instance, it only represents about a fourth of the doctors in the country now. That the specialty societies are more important to most doctors than AMA or the umbrella. So I'd I'd say how physicians respond over the next couple of years is a is probably a, a key concern. And then I guess lastly, um, insurers are in a unique Position. Uh, We've got about 200 health systems right now that have ventures uh, with um, some of the major private insurers. Um, And then, of course, you've got the uh, United slash Optums of the world that are uh, direct employers of 46,000 doctors and operating surgery centers and a variety of other delivery systems. So. I think the, the, the role that the insurers uh, play and how that's defined, and it's going to be very different, um, is, is the core business of insuring groups. Uh, the future for most, Medicare Advantage is the most profitable part of their portfolio. Individual market continues to be problematic, uh, but do they go it on their own? do they partner with health systems? Um, each is going to answer that differently. You even got the CVS App thing, which is kind of fascinating to watch. So those four I'd say are kind of the top of the list.
0: Paul always enjoy hearing your insights um, and having you back on the show. Uh, if someone wanted to read more of your insights and get some uh, additional perspectives from you, where can they go?
1: Well, thank you. Um, it's uh, www.PaulKackley.com. It's basically a weekly uh, report that I produce, and its um, I try to be independent. I'm not blue or red. I'm just a data geek and an industry student, uh, and that report's free, so <laughs> it, the entry barrier is not very high, but thanks for mentioning that.
0: Well, I enjoy reading it, and I hope our audience uh, takes a few minutes to check it out. Paul Keckley, thanks so much for joining us again on the Hospital Finance Podcast.
1: Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it.
0: This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit bestler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.